we're continuing uh, to take a look at eternal security and we've gotten through four of you know what I'm calling the eight undeniable proofs of eternal security and my goal is to get through two more tonight although I added a few slides that I want to talk about as I was reviewing I thought it might be good for us to kind of define some terms and make sure that uh, as we get into particularly this fifth uh, undeniable proof that we're going to introduce here in a moment I thought it might be good to uh, to give you some just some teaching on some of these key terms and so forth but uh, by way of review we want to remind you that there are basically three views when it comes to the doctrine of eternal security the doctrine of eternal security is the view that states that once you've been born again by faith you can never go to hell you can never lose the salvation that was given to you um, as a result of your faith so more than 160 times the New Testament conditions eternal salvation upon faith alone when we believe the gospel at that moment we are eternally saved and there are those out there who uh, mistakenly teach that you can lose that gift of eternal life that's been given to you and that would be the first view that you see on the screen the explicit denial um, we reject that and hopefully as we've gone through these already you've seen enough proof to show that the Bible clearly teaches you cannot lose your salvation uh, but there's a second view uh, and that is sort of the de facto denial or I call it the effective denial and that is they would never outright say in so many words that you could lose your salvation but they likewise put a great emphasis on your works and your behavior and your performance and they would claim if your behavior doesn't measure up or if it doesn't reach some ambiguous standard then you really were never saved so it's really the same thing in the end you still end up in hell so they would say a person who places their faith in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation as their only hope for forgiveness of sin and eternal life but then later turns out to live a, a sinful life or uh, kind of backslides or even denies the Lord that in that case well they must never have really been saved and we reject that view as well because uh, either uh, the Bible is telling the truth when it says you have eternal life or it's not and so we've talked already about kind of the logical proof and some of those things. Yeah. So, so they're sort of wishy-washy then. And you try to hold them to a verse or two to explain that. Do they have any evidence? Yeah, so the question is um, on this second uh, view, the effective denial where they say your salvation can't be lost, but you can prove that you never had it. You can disprove it, in other words. Do they have passages, the question is, to prove that? Uh, absolutely, yeah. They, they point to a lot of passages that uh, are taken, uh, we believe, out of context. They are uh, basically, they bring their Calvinist view to the text, and according to their Calvinist view, every believer will persevere in good works. That's the, the fifth point in Calvinism. Remember, Calvinism as a theological system is built upon five interconnected points, and you can remember them by the acronym TULIP, like the flower, T-U-L-I-P. So they believe in total inability. Mankind has no ability to believe the gospel. Only God can believe the gospel for you. They believe in unconditional election. There's absolutely nothing you have to do. You're either going to heaven or you're not. They believe in limited atonement, that Jesus died only for the sins of those who are going to heaven. And they believe in irresistible grace. This is the part that we've talked a lot about that you cannot 
believe the gospel if you're not elect. And if you are elect, you can't refuse the gospel. You have no choice in the matter. It is irresistible. If you're elect, you're in. And at some point in your journey, you will involuntarily, through no conscious volitional decision of your own, believe the gospel. Uh, but you had no choice in the matter. It was irresistible. But the fifth point is the P, tulip, is perseverance. And so they believe that you must persevere in good works, and if you don't, you're not saved. So we reject that. I actually reject all five points the way they define them, the way Calvinists today define them. And we have that uh, multi-disc DVD set on what is Calvinism and is it biblical, where I painstakingly go through each of the five points, define it in their terms using their own quotes from their own writings, hundreds of quotes, or over a hundred, and then I go to the scripture and explain why I believe that's not accurate. Um, so that's, uh, that's at the back, at the, I think, and also on our website. Yeah? I can't help but ask this question. Within the Calvinist movement, let's use that word, uh, is there a consistency among those that profess these five things you just discussed, or, or, or are there variables from one church to another? Well, so that's a great question. You always ask great questions, so don't ever hesitate to ask a question. <laughs> and you make great comments, too. Um, the question is, are there variables within Calvinism? Yeah, certainly. There's degrees to some extent, but they would all agree on the five points. It's going to differ on uh, minor points and, 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 and how they take certain passages of Scripture and what they emphasize. So... Um, you know, some Calvinists emphasize irresistible grace more than others. That, you know, just pray that you're elect, you know. Uh, Wouldn't it? It seems to me that so much of it is is based upon one's interpretation of I mean, how, much, how much works is good works. Oh, yeah. It's very subjective. Yeah. And so what might be good to one may not be acceptable to another because they're very judgmental, apparently. Yeah. And so I would think that the people would be in a constant state of confusion. Well, it, it definitely leads to a definite lack of assurance, but the Calvinists teach uh, and have written books about it that doubt is a good thing. They, they want you to doubt your salvation. It is healthy to doubt your salvation. In their view... They say, and I know this is counterintuitive, I, I make a big deal about this in my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong. I have a, a whole section on it and an extended footnote where I quote them. They have a book, called, for example, called Doubt and Assurance, Using Doubt to Be Sure. You know, and I say that's kind of like using fire to keep ice cold you know, or, or something. So, um, but, uh, so they believe that uh, by, by all constantly examining yourself, you are sort of proving your salvation. And uh, so to going back to Fred's question, there are passages like 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Uh, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. They take that to mean check out your behavior to make sure you're really a Christian, <laughs> which is not at all what Paul was saying there. He has talked a lot in that epistle about faith. That's the epistle where he makes the famous statement a few chapters earlier, we walk by faith and not by sight. The Christian life is lived by faith. And what he is saying there is that we should examine ourselves to see if we're walking by faith right now, not to see if we ever, have ever been in the faith or to see if we're really a Christian. 
He just says, are you living by faith right now? And uh, he also talks a lot in there about um, being, uh, you know, the, the standing the test at the judgment seat and whether or not he would uh, pass the test or he would be disqualified, uh, which, again, uh, does not have anything to do with eternal salvation. But they would look at a lot of passages that uh, at first value, particularly James 2, 14 to 26, which we've touched on quite a bit, they take that to mean if your faith does not produce good works, it wasn't real faith to begin with, and you're going to hell. <laughs> That's what they take. We say, no, he's not talking about heaven or hell in James 2. He's talking to believers. He calls them brothers. He's talking about the practical value, or lack thereof, of a faith that will get you to heaven, but it won't help you avoid the consequences of sin on this earth. So it's about faith and works should go together. When they do, they create this vibrant, effective relationship. Uh, just as when you see a poor or destitute person in need and you say, God bless you, but do nothing, it's really of no value. But if you walk over and give them a blanket and give them some food, now you've accomplished something. And that's what he's trying to tell the early church in his epistle, is that faith and works should go together. But he never suggests that if you don't have works, you're going to hell. He just says, if you don't have works, your faith is not useless or effective here on this earth. So, but they have several passages, uh, Fred, that they would point to and, and take, uh, take differently. You know? They're taking those and focusing on that, whereas there are hundreds of times where it says, believe Jesus himself said, believe in me. Believe in me, yeah. How do they do with that? Well, again, they remember the big crux of the matter in the conflict or the debate, uh, a theological debate with Calvinists, is they believe that the word faith means submit, turn, forsake, surrender, commit, promise, pledge, make him Lord. They put all of that into the word faith, and it's all under the heading of what they call fiducia. Remember, we talked about that. And, um, and they say, if you don't have all those elements, it's not real faith. So when you start redefining words, you can use Scripture to defend everything. So they, when we say there are 160 verses in the New Testament that condition eternal life upon faith alone, they say, absolutely, there are 160 verses in the New Testament that condition eternal life upon faith, surrender, obedience, commitments, repentance, forsaking sin, pledge of allegiance, making Him Lord, you know, they put all because that's how they define faith, right? So it's it, there's a lot of uh, semantics because they've kind of changed the rules of the game. But that word faith, which is the noun pistis, and the verb believe or trust, which is the word pistuo in Greek, have always had the same meaning. Uh, they have to have an object. You can't just say I believe without having an object. Believe what, right? Believe who? You know what, what? What's the object of your faith? But it always means confidence and assurance. So if you are confident about something, you believe it. If you're not confident or assured, then you don't believe it. But it has nothing to do with your behavior. That's completely foreign to the the, the history of the word. Yeah. In terms of determining what the words mean, when the Bible was codified into the sixty-six books that we have now, were they looking at the original language when they selected those books? Yeah, that's all they had. So the question is, when the canon was uh, discovered, um, uh, remember, we never want to use the phrase when they determined the canon. Because who determined the canon? 
God, <laughs> right? It's God's Word. God determines which books are inspired. Man did not determine that. Man discovered them. It's like panning for gold. You don't get to pick up a piece of fool's gold and say, this is gold, right? It either is or it isn't. God determined the 66 books of the Bible over the first three or 400 years. By 397, for sure, uh, mankind through, you know, we didn't have the technology and even the transportation methods and things like that that we have today. So it took time for them to circulate things around. But by the fourth century, we had discovered which books were clearly uh, inspired of God. And there are uh, certain characteristics that they use, that the Lord used to help direct them to that. Apostolic authority, internal consistency, the fact that it had no errors. All the other extra-biblical books have errors in them. They've, they either written by imposters, they had fake names, they have scientific errors, there's all kinds of, or historical errors more to the point that people just put in there. So there are, humanly speaking, some pretty easy ways to differentiate between the inspired 66 books of the Bible and the ones that aren't, but ultimately it was God's hand that did it. But at the time they were doing that, all they had was Greek, and then early on, uh, let's see, Latin Jerome was the 400, so that's when he translated it into Latin. So it was mostly Greek, so they were just looking at, you know, the Greek. Now the Old Testament, I mean, that's been accepted since before the New Testament was written. So they knew what 39 books of the Old Testament were, the books, the, you know, the books of the Hebrew Bible. So really, when we talk about canonicity, it's more an issue of the first century and the New Testament, which, which of the 27 books were were uh, inspired. So, um, but in terms of words, you know, this is, you didn't ask this question, but I thought this might be where you were going, and I was hoping it was, but I'm going to bring it up anyway. Yeah. Well, we have so many translations now. Yeah. And as you've taught us, they have the same Greek word, but maybe it's five different English words. That's right. When they select that particular translation. Yeah. Okay. Well, are the translations inspired then? No. No. So the, uh, when we, the doctrine of inerrancy, which is a fundamental standard of orthodoxy, states that in the autographs, meaning the original, when the quill hit the sheepskin under the inspiration of the Spirit, that's called the autograph, that there are no errors or whatever. If in a, when a scribe is copying it for distribution, he made a type, what we would call a typo. They didn't have typewriters, but you know what yeah. I mean. That doesn't impugn the inerrancy of God. What did you call it? A righto. A right. When they made a righto, a scribo or whatever. Scribo. I like this. It does not impugn the inerrancy of Scripture. So that's why we need to constantly remember that the Bible was not written in English. In the grand scheme of God's revelation to mankind, remember, God revealed His written word to humanity over a period of 1,500 years, beginning in 1446 with the books of Moses during the wilderness wanderings for that 40 years, and then going all the way through to the mid-90s A.D. in the Greco-Roman era. And by the time that, so that's 1446 B.C. to say 95 A.D., that's roughly 1,550 years, let's say. And, and once that was done, he was done. He had given us everything we need for life and godliness. When did the English language come along? especially American English. I mean, we just celebrated our 245th birthday. So, I mean, it's fairly novel. So we need to remember that the Bible was not written in English, 
and and uh, therefore at least this is the way I like to, to talk to uh, you know just lay students who love the Lord and love to study His Word. You ought to at least have a recognition of that fact and an appreciation that sometimes doing a little word study or looking at a commentary that that touches on some of the original language can be helpful uh, in uh, in interpreting the Word of God. Now. There's, a, all, there's another doctrine that we hold dear, and that is the doctrine of perspicuity, which is that the Bible is always understandable by the, you know, any, any person. You don't need a scholar or a language expert or a priest, for heaven's sake, to tell you what it means. So as long as you've got a translation in your language, uh, you can understand it. And the Holy Spirit will help lead and guide you in that process. But nevertheless... When we base our interpretation, and, the, and I see this all the time, I see bad preaching, and when I was a full-time teacher, I would see it regularly, and I see it occasionally, I'll hear it on the radio. I was listening to something yesterday on my way home from our meeting, and the guy was, I really liked what he was saying, but I just had to cringe a couple of times, because he was in Revelation chapter 6, and he was just making some bad interpretations based on the English translation. So, you know, when... When you're studying the Bible, just recognize, okay, I'm looking at a translation. Just as sure as your folks in Peru are looking at a Spanish translation. Um, and sometimes it can be helpful uh, to do a word study. And these days, uh, in, the, in the incredible age in which we live, there's no excuse not to. Because you've got Bible software where you can literally pull out your smartphone, look up a verse in just about any English Bible. I mean... King James, New King James, New American Standard, even NIV, ESV, almost all the popular ones today, hover your finger over the word, and the original Greek or Hebrew word will pop up on the screen and give you a lexical meaning. I mean, that's how easy it is. Now, that's not enough information. You've you got to do something with that information, because as we know, dic a lexicon, by the way, is just an, a dictionary. It's what we call a dictionary. So a lexicon is a Greek dictionary, or a Hebrew lexicon is a Hebrew dictionary. And as I hope you all know, a dictionary does not give us the meaning of the word. It gives us the possi possible meanings, a list of possible or a range of meanings. So just because, you know, you know if you if put it this way, if you, were, if you didn't know English, and you could use this technique like we're doing with our Bibles to hold your finger over a word in, in English and you came across the word trunk, and you hovered your finger over it and it popped up, it's going to say a multitude of things. So you're still not going to really know what it means in that context until you begin to understand the surrounding context. It's going to say part of an elephant or part of a tree or the storage compartment on a car or a big suitcase, right? So, And it doesn't mean all of those things. It can't mean all of them. It means one of them. So the same thing's true in Greek. So but you can at least look at the dictionary options and say, oh, okay, and, uh, and, and then look at the context. So context always determines meaning. And you know what I was going to mention a moment ago about word studies is that it's very important. Uh, and when I, would, I used to give this assignment when I was teaching full-time, uh, and I would explain to the students, make sure when you're doing a word study, and I would have them pick four or five words from a given passage and have them do word studies, I would say, I want to make sure you do... Uh, uh, not diachronic word studies, but uh, synchronic word studies. So see if we can figure out what that means just from those of you who know, have studied Latin or whatever. So chronic, what does that have to do with? 
time, right? Against, so against uh, sin, right? Very close within, right? So within time or dia means through or over. It's a preposition. Both of those are prepositions, but so they can mean everything. But the idea is, do you look at a word's meaning throughout time, or do you look at it within the time in which it was written? And you, you want to do it synchronically, synchronically within uh, the time in which it was written. So, and an example would be, if you were reading something, let, let's say you, uh, you're 100 years old, and you got hit in the head at age 6, 94 years ago, and we've been in a coma for the last 94 years. And you woke up today, and you pick up a newspaper, and you see frequent references to the word gay. Now, that word meant something totally different in the early 20th century than it does today. So sometimes people will do word studies, uh, especially with the Greek, and they'll go back to the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was 300 years, not 94 years, but 300 years before the New Testament was written. And they'll say, here's what it means there. This must mean what, what it means here. And that's, that's an example of a diachronic word study, which can lead to uh, misunderstandings. Now, it can, it's still helpful to look through time. And I frequently go to the Septuagint, uh, especially for words that don't change over time. If it's always ever, all the extra biblical usage and the internal biblical usage, and then you go to the Septuagint and you go, yep, they're using it the same way there, it, it can bolster your case. But you don't want to hang your hat on a word's meaning based on something that was said 300 years ago. Yeah. Was all of the Apocrypha in the Septuagint? Yeah, yeah back then. Uh, in the Septuagint, um, that's a good question. Uh, no, the Septuagint was just the Old Testament. So the Apocrypha relates to first century extra biblical works. So the Apocrypha was not Hebrew. Uh, so the Apocrypha was just the, I mean, the Septuagint was not Hebrew. The Septuagint was just the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures. So, so uh, the Apocrypha books during that period, they weren't there to be interpreted in the Septuagint. So they came after that? Yeah. And before the New Testament writing. Like, I'm thinking of Mac. Sure, and, and Book of Enoch and, and all Esdras and all that. Yeah, so they were they were you know closer in time to the first century than they would have been obviously to the Old Testament. The last writing prop in the Old Testament was 500 years before Christ. So I don't know the exact date uh, of each of the apocryphal books, but my sense is they were because it's been a long time since I've looked them up. Uh, but they're valuable. I mean, I, I've been looking at a lot at the Book of Enoch lately because as a historical document, uh, similar to Josephus or some other historical documents, they can give us information. We just need to understand they're not the inspired Word of God that is sharper than any two-edged sword and that the Spirit of God is using in that dynamic way. Do you believe most were well-intentioned? Some of them were, some of them weren't. Um, but even if they were not well-intentioned, you can learn a lot from reading. I read a, as you know, I read a lot of books by people that I completely disagree with ideologically, philosophically, politically, um, because nuggets. you get nuggets, exactly. So uh, you got to spit out the, the, the bones and eat the meat. So um, 
so anyway, that was totally completely off the subject, but it is. But it's important. Fred started it. We're going to blame him. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but it is important to understand that words have meaning, and context uh, is critical when it comes to you know understanding the meaning. And so, when what Calvinists do, and I believe in mishandling the scripture. And again, I'm not impugning their integrity or calling them mean or ugly or disparaging them as personally we just have an honest disagreement about how you handle the scriptures and they come at it um, not always consistently with a literal grammatical syntactical historical approach to language the way i believe you should they tend uh, we all do this to some extent but they tend more often than not to bring their uh, presupposition of god's you know, election and sovereignty and all that, and, and they kind of tip way to the scales of that. So passages that make it as simple as believing in Jesus Christ who died and rose again for your sins, they say, well, that's what he said, but he can't really mean that. It can't be that simple. It's got to be much harder than that. Remember the book we talked about by MacArthur, Hard to Believe. You know, that's their approach, right? Yeah. You remember in the book Huckleberry Finn when Huckleberry was trying to rescue someone? And then Tom Sawyer made it way harder when he was supposed to help. I don't remember that like, scene. Yeah, the hilarious. Style in the <laughs> it's hilarious, it's huh? When he's so, there's a slave. Um, what's his name? Jim. 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 Yeah. Yeah. And he's stuck in this little shack, right? And he doesn't know he's a free man because he was given his freedom. But and I think Tom knows, but Huck doesn't yeah. or something. And so Huck just was like, "Let's just get him out of here," you know. And Tom's like, "Oh no." We got we got to put like rats in there and spiders like make it like a real prison cell first, you know. And then they put case knives under under to make a big hole for him to crawl out of. And he could have just walked right out. Right. Yeah, there's a spiritual application there for sure. Uh, so I think you could pick it up because they're pretty close to the mic. But they were talking about Huck Finn and one of the scenes in there. So, all right. So everybody understands that we believe the Bible teaches the third view, which is a defense. Uh, explicitly in scripture of the doctrine of eternal security according to which salvation can never be lost period so we have been talking about eight undeniable proofs we looked at logical proof and uh, we basically said eternal means eternal if eternal life could be lost then it's got the worst name you could give something if, if it's not really eternal then we looked at biblical proof and we looked at all of these passages uh, as sort of some of the primary proof texts of, uh, of these uh, doctrines. One of the best things that, that ever happened to me in my journey uh, in education, uh, you know, uh, uh, in studying the Word of God and learning and in preparation for ministry was uh, in my first time in seminary, I had a professor who went to be with the Lord not long ago, Bob Leitner was his name, Dr. Bob Leitner. In fact, we gave away one of his books here not too long ago, uh, and uh, Fenske uh, from Grace Acres Press did that. Um, but anyway, he required all of his students, he was a theology professor, and he required all of his students for all the major doctrines to memorize all of the major proof texts or key passages that defend those doctrines. So the deity of Christ, salvation by grace through faith, any doctrine, angelology, you know, all of them. And so... Those stuck with me and uh, have proved faithful. And, of course, I've broadened it and, you know, learn, you, theology is a lifelong process. You never arrive. You're always learning. Um, but 
if you were going to memorize the key proof texts for the doctrine of eternal security, this would probably be the top five right here. Okay. Not the only ones, of course, because the whole counsel of God teaches this doctrine, but certainly big ones. And then we uh, talked about directional proof, where we said, never forget the direction of salvation. It's not about what we offer God, it's about what He offers us. And if He's the one giving it to us, then it's, it's, it's lasting nature, it's security, if you want to call it that, eternal security, is dependent on Him, not us. And then last week we also looked at legal proof, where we spent quite a bit of time talking about the term justification as a legal term means to be declared righteous. The gavel comes down and you're declared not guilty uh, and our sins have been paid for. And so if our salvation could be lost, it would be like God, the eternal creator and judge of the universe, reneging on his ruling, right? And of course he's not going to do that. So that brings us to number five, which is the theological proof. And here's where I want to sort of interject a couple of, uh, a few minutes here of some discussion. And if, it, if we only get to theological proof, that's fine. We'll pick up next time. We're not on any agenda. But it's important that we understand what we mean by theology. And so uh, let's just kind of out loud here uh, take a stab at defining theology. Because it's one of those words that we use all the time, but I, I find that people don't really have a firm grasp on what is the what does that term mean like for example what's the difference between theology and doctrine you ever thought about it so who who can and 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 you know we're all among friends here so the worst that can happen is i'll just make fun of you um but what's uh what's give me a what your thoughts are on the meaning of theology yeah a word about god well that would be the so that was very good did y'all hear that a word about god so he gave us the what you might call the etymological meaning, because the etymology of the word theology comes from two Greek words, theos, meaning God, and logos, meaning word. So, by the way, anytime you see ology in any word, it's a word about, or what we have come to define it as in English is the study of, but it's basically a word about you know, philosophy, a word about, you know, virology, right? Virology is one of those studies that nobody seems to know what it means, right? So, but uh, anyway, so, so yes, it's a word about God, but help me understand, yeah. Knowing God, knowing who he is, being able to define his holiness so we can work towards living up to yeah, so knowing God, knowing his attributes, his holiness, um, you added to the purpose of it. So you're getting into more the, the study of, you know, the process of theology, which we're going to get to in a second. But yeah, that's good, to, uh, knowing God. Yeah. And edu the educated discussion of, of doctrines. That's good, too. The educated discussion, well, of doctrine. Because it, it's like an educated dis discussion because... There's some things that have been laid down in, you know, in theological circles. They they discuss about. Yeah, you're 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 really right on it. Uh, I'm going to come back to that in a second. Yeah. The study, the study of God. The study of God. That's good. So Charles Ryrie. Oh yeah. What were you going to say? Study of Christianity. Study of Christianity. So certainly Christianity is part of God's plan because God eternally exists, like we 
talked about a couple of weeks ago as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So Christianity would be specifically related to Christology, which is what? A word about Christ, the study of Christ, right? Um, so Charles Ryrie, uh, who is one of my favorite theologians, again, he's with the Lord also, but I had the chance to work with him many times, and he really, his writings in particular, uh, and some of his speeches uh, that I was with him for really helped shape my thinking. But he defines theology this way. Theology is thinking about God and expressing those thoughts in some way. So it's the discussion aspect that you were talking about. Um, thinking It's basically thinking and talking about God. Okay. So, But what I want to do is kind of narrow in a little bit more specifically on the, the differences between the different kinds of theology so that you can kind of, uh, I think, understand what we mean when we talk about theological proof. So uh, there are five steps in the process of theology. So the first thing you need to notice, and uh, Gary was sort of already getting ahead of us there, is that theology is a process, not a product. So sometimes we have the impression that if you have, for example, Charles Ryrie's basic theology textbook, which is about that thick, or you have Lewis Berry Chafer's eight-volume set of systematic theology, or you have, you know, fill in the blank, somebody's theology book. I'd love someday to write a theology book, but that's a hard thing, you know, it's a lifelong process, so I'm not sure if I'll live long enough. But, um, but a lot of times you see that book and you think, ah, you know, they've arrived. That's the product. This is, they, in fact, they even call it a theology book, right? So they think of theology as a product. But it's not a product. It's a process, and it's a lifelong process that never ends until we get to heaven. And I'm going to explain the, what I believe are five steps in it. Now, there's nothing magical about these five steps. Uh, some people might break it down into six or seven. But this is a paradigm that I've used for 25 years in, in the classroom. And I've found it's very helpful for me to conceptualize the process, and I think students have uh, found it helpful too. So the first step is what we would call biblical theology. Biblical theology, and so understandably it starts with the Bible, right? Um, the Bible, we believe, is God's self-unveiling to mankind. It's, it's His way of saying, here I am, look at me. So we don't study God you know, and, and uh, who was it that said the study of God? Uh, I think that was Fred or Christ, same thing. Uh, we don't study him uh, subjectively. We don't study him through, you know, d divining shapes in the clouds or goosebumps. We, we study him with an empirical starting point. And that empirical starting point is the Bible. And so that's why in, the, in, in any... Uh, good seminary that believes the Bible is the Word of God. When you take theology, you're going to take, typically cover the ten classic categories of systematic theology, which are Bible, God, Christ, Church, Holy Bible, God, Christ, Holy Spirit, Church, um, angels, demons, um, salvation, sanctification, end times, and I'm leaving one out. But anyway, that's the classic... Um, so it's, you know, uh, theology proper, Christology, pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit, ecclesiology, the study of the church, um, 
soteriology, the study of salvation, uh, angelology, demonology, satanology, um, eschatology, the study of last things. Uh, those, the, the, you know, they all have the ology in the, in the strict academic sense, but we would call them Bible, God, Christ. But my point is, when you start studying theology, it begins with the Bible. That's the first class you take, bibliology, right? Bibliology, the study of the Bible. Uh, and, and so in this process, uh, you've got to make sure that you're looking at the Bible in its plain, normal, literal, grammatical, historical sense. The word hermeneutic that you see on the screen there just means methodology. How do you study the Bible? Believe me, not all Bible study methods are equal. So um, you, you, the only correct one is the literal grammatical historical approach, which is the way that any language is intended to be understood. Right? The way communication works is the speaker or author says something in a given language, and then the recipient or hearer looks at it grammatically, historically, and culturally, and literally, based on the words he says, and comes up with, what does he mean? That's just common sense. I mean, that's just basic language skills. So uh, a lot of people come to the Bible and they think that somehow it is this mystical book where you got to read between the lines, or there are these code languages like the Bible code, and you count up the letters, and you, you know, all, all kinds of crazy methods for studying the Bible. Most commonly, the most common error is just taking a verse out of context, just ripping a verse. Uh, I listened to another guy today on my drive in who I really like, uh, though we don't agree on everything, but he was talking about Isaiah 26, uh, 14. And again, ripped it out of context. And I, you know, I love that passage. I often quote from Isaiah 26. Um, and uh, so I happen to know what's going on in the context. And he just completely didn't even give it any consideration. So, so it starts with biblical theology. And when you're doing biblical theology, you're basically consumed with the text. You're not looking at commentaries. You're not looking at theology books. You're not calling your pastor and asking him. <laughs> you're just looking at the Bible and letting it speak for itself and studying it. But then you move to the second step, which is what we most commonly think of when we think of theology, and that is systematic theology, which is where you begin to cross-reference from one verse to another. And so a good example of this is, is those center column notes in most study Bibles, where you'll see a little footnote in a verse, and you go look it up in the center column, and it, it takes you to another verse. That's called cross-referencing. Uh, sometimes you'll hear it called theological linking. Um, and you do it all the time if you're studying the Word uh, without even thinking about it. You'll read a verse, and it'll bring to mind another verse, right? And so you go look at that verse, right? That's, that's step two. So what does this look like in real practice? Well, for example, if you were studying uh, the book of Genesis, at step one here, just studying the book of Genesis. You're not cross-referencing. You're just looking at that one book of the Bible. And I were to ask you, who tempted Eve in the garden? What would you say? What did you say? Satan. Who thinks it was Satan? Oh, that was the snake. The snake. The snake. Who thinks it was the serpent? serpent. <laughs> who thinks it was the devil? Well, here's the... In All the above. <laughs> Uh, Gary's got his feet firmly planted in midair. Uh, so the interesting thing is, you'll not find a single reference in the entire book of Genesis to Satan or the devil. Not there. So you're all right, 
But how do we know we're right? How do you know the serpent is the devil? By doing step two. By comparing scripture with scripture. By cross-referencing. And you go to Revelation chapter 12 and it tells us that serpent of old who is the devil. Right? So, so that's the difference between step one and step two. And I don't have this chart. Uh, I didn't plan to talk about this. But at some point in, in the future maybe I'll talk about how the most common mistake or mistakes most commonly enter the equation at step two where you you link verses that don't really go together and I have a chart that I use called uh, how to misinterpret the Bible and I walk you through how that happens but are you following me so far you start with a passage of scripture make sure you understand it in its context then you begin to compare it to other passages and see what the Bible as a whole is saying so if you're going to study the doctrine of angels for example you might start by studying, uh, let's say, uh, Genesis, <laughs> a lot, lot about angels in Genesis. But if you only study Genesis, you would have an incomplete understanding of the whole counsel of God related to angels. Because the Bible has a lot to say about angels in a lot of other passages. So one of the 24 rules of hermeneutics that, that I uh, cover in my Bible study methods class is you can never consider a doctrine complete until it has taken into account everything the Bible says about that subject. And a lot of people, for example, uh, say in the charismatic movement, they camp out in Acts and Corinthians, and they come up with a view of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And frankly, a lot of us could stand to spend more time in Acts and Corinthians and understand that the Holy Spirit is alive and well, and He is very much uh, a powerful part of the Trinity. We, for the rest of us that aren't charismatic, often the Holy Spirit's the forgotten member of the Trinity. But still, by, by fixating on just those passages, they kind of have an imbalanced uh, view of the Holy Spirit. And frankly, we all do that. Whatever you're most passionate about, and we're all going to be different there in terms of a biblical topic. Obviously, you know, for me, it's eschatology and soteriology, end times and salvation. Those are my biggest things that really make my heart dance. So I have to be careful not to camp out on given passages and make everything be about eternal salvation or make everything be about the end times, right? I have to you know, be careful to look at it in its context. So, um, so I'm not criticizing those that are more charismatic. Again, I, I appreciate them, and I, uh, but we, we just have a difference of how you handle some of the teaching about pneumatology or the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So you, you're tracking with me here. Step one, you spend some time in the text. Step two, you begin to branch out uh, and see what the Bible says about it elsewhere. And then at step three, here's where we get into doctrine. And so the difference between theology is, and, and doctrine is theology is a process. Doctrine is a conclusion. So at step three, you begin to record and categorize and summarize the results of steps one and two. So when you look at a doctrinal statement, for example, like the doctrinal statement of Plum Creek Chapel, which is on our website and also in our brochures at the back, um, it's going to have what we believe about all the key areas of theology. It's going to have a summary statement of our belief, and then it's going to have a bunch of Bible references and parentheses that we believe make the case or prove what we're saying. So when you look at a doctrinal statement, you're sort of assuming that whoever wrote it has done steps one and two. 
And if they haven't, it's going to be probably a pretty bizarre doctrinal statement that's all over the map. But if you've consistently done step one, step two, by the time you get to step three, you write it down and, and you've formulated some conclusions that are non-negotiable. Yeah? When we were doing our pastor search, we looked at each candidate's doctoral statement yeah. to make sure that we had a good feel for where they were coming from and how that meshed with what we believe is. Absolutely. That's a, it's kind of a, you, you want to be careful not to, you know, rely too heavily on the doctrinal statement to the extent that it might short circuit getting back to the words. In other words, some people, uh, again, I'm not uh, meaning to disparage Calvinists, but they, they are more likely to harp on the five points of Calvinism than they are the Bible. I've been to several Calvinist conferences, big time, crack and Ligonier and Desiring God, and uh, I remember one correct conference in, in particular, that's, uh, I think it's Christian Reformed Evangelical Church, anyway, it's CREC, C-R-E-C, and it was multiple speakers over several days, and I kid you not, they, they quoted the church fathers at least two or three to one over Bible references, and they just, because it's more important to them to make sure that they're consistent within their system. So, but what's nice about doctrinal statements, as Gary just said, is that it does sort of give you a snapshot of this person's theological worldview. And then you can compare that to your church, and you can say, is this a fit? Now, in that process, did you have uh, people that submitted resumes that didn't include a doctrinal statement? Or if you asked them, they like were like, oh, I have to put one together? Yeah, I wouldn't think so. Yeah, for this... Obviously, you know, church with a strong heritage of uh, commitment to the authority of God's word and so forth, that doesn't surprise me at all. But in mainstream evangelicalism, there are a lot of churches, in fact, I would say the majority, don't even have doctrinal statements anymore. You look at their website, you can't find it. Or they'll just have, we believe in God, he's our best friend, come join us for coffee. You know, something, you know that's kind of the extent of their doctrinal statement. But um, that's ridiculous to me. Um, and people today choose churches based on how comfortable the seats are, how big the nursery is, how convenient the parking is, those types of things. And they don't even give a second thought to the doctrine. And, uh, and I just i have never understood that. Um, so, so by the time you get to step three, you've sort of arrived at some conclusions. And what's helpful about that is that even though it's a continual process, you constantly, you know, you know, wash, rinse, repeat, right? Step one, step two, step three, repeat. Step one, step two, step three, repeat. And so, but as you develop your theology and broaden it and, and compare Scripture with Scripture and become more solidified in the key doctrines, such as eternal security, then it can really be helpful because you go back to some of these verses that Fred asked about early on tonight where at face value, they seem to be puzzling, and they seem to be uh, implying that good works are necessary somehow to get to heaven. And at that point, because you've done this process consistently, you can say, well, I'm not exactly sure what this verse means yet. I've got to do some more digging. But I know what it does not mean, because I've clarified emphatically at step three, by doing steps one and step two, and I've recorded it, 
that the doctrine of eternal security is a biblical doctrine, and the Bible cannot contradict itself. So sometimes when you come to difficult passages, you can start by ruling out some things. And you do that because you've done the first three steps. But the process of theology does not stop there. There are two more steps. This is where most people think it stops, but it does not stop there. The fourth step is comparative theology, which is where you take that, those conclusions that you've arrived at, and you then look at the world and its truth claims through that lens. So, for example, when you, if you've concluded at step three that uh, adultery is wrong and it's an offense to a holy God, and the world is out there at every turn saying, oh, just, you know, sleep with whoever you want and, you know, have fun, and then you can, you can use your grid that you created at step three to reject those truth claims. So, basically, step four is where you validate or invalidate any and all truth claims from every other source. So by having a doctrinal statement, it's not just about getting smarter or you know, being able to you kind of pat yourself on the back and say, look what I did. No, it's to put it to use to be able to reject the devil's lies when he throws them at you at every turn. Right? Uh, so you have to put it to use. But it still doesn't stop there. The ultimate goal of theology is a changed life. And so applied theology is when you take what you've learned and apply it to your own personal life. And it helps you mold and shape into the image of Christ, and you hopefully are becoming more practically righteous. Remember, we've talked a lot uh, here in our midweek study about positional righteousness, which comes by faith in Christ and can never change, versus practical righteousness, which is actually living out what the new man inside you is promoting, right? So applied theology is what it's all about. So I know people uh, at each of these spots. Some people camp out at stop, step three, uh, uh, and, and yet they are inconsistent in how you know, they view life, and they, they may, may on paper hold a certain view, but they're quick to embrace some progressive or these days communistic socialist Attitude. I know of a preacher, uh, I don't know him, but someone called me this week and told me that their preacher this past Sunday on 4th of July preached on how uh, validating critical race theory and how America is systemically racist and we should apologize and we're a terrible nation and on and on and on. Well, I mean, I'm sure that guy has a doctrinal statement that's you know probably not bad in most areas, but he's certainly not using what the Bible says to reject lies that we're hearing uh, in our culture today. But at the same time, I know people that get all the way to step four, or I've come across people, where they're championing biblical truth out in the public square. They're, they're doing comparative theology, comparing what the Bible says with what the culture says. But yet they themselves are living you know, horribly sinful lives. I knew a pastor one time that for 10 years was having an affair with a woman in the church. 10 years. Got up every Sunday and preached against abortion and against promiscuity and against all the evils of society. He was, he was rock solid down to step four. But his personal life was in shambles. And the world is filled with biblically brilliant but morally bankrupt people. So if you're not taking what the Bible says and applying it to your own life, you're not doing theology. So the first three steps are what I call the development phase, the development th phase of theology. By the time you get to step three, you've, you've created a grid 
you know, to use for life. Uh, but the, the second two steps are the implementation phase. The implementation phase. And that's where you actually put it to use. So another way to diagram this, uh, and by the way, all these charts are in my Works chart book, which has over 100 different charts on different topics. But if you think of the Bible as the filter for all truth claims, then everything we hear from any and all sources, from science and nature, from philosophy. So this first one that you see on the top left there, that's what makes this creationism conference that we're hosting this weekend so valuable. Because, you know, we're all looking at the same data. It's not like the atheistic eugenicist Darwinians have a secret set of data and they're back in back rooms saying, how oh, they don't know what we know, so we really are right. No, we're all looking at the same scientific data. The difference is we're running it through the grid of God's infallible and errant word, and we come out to see that science is a Christian's best friend. And the Bible is true from cover to cover and word for word, right? So, you know, when you start with the premise that the Bible is the infallible word of God, everything makes sense. Everything makes perfect sense. But you run everything through the grid of Scripture, not through some atheistic scientist, not through some seventh-grade biology teacher, not through some newscaster on the evening news, but through the Bible. And by the way, Bible study itself, uh, it, you know, it has to be run through the Bible because today you have these shrink-wrap Bible studies and people are much more prone to read you know, Christian authors. And I'm glad they are because I, you know, make part of our living from selling books. So don't stop reading Christian authors. But if you make a choice between the Bible and reading one of my books, read the Bible. Don't read other books. And so, you know, all these different shrink wrap uh, curricula that people go through and they call it a Bible study. Well, that's fine, but let's not forget to make sure that what that teacher is saying, you know, is accurate. That's why you've heard me say many times, don't just take my word for stuff. That's very uh, uh, scary when you think about it. Uh, I had another guy call me this week from um, Chicago area, Indiana, uh, who is, uh, feels God might be calling him into the ministry. And he called because he was scared to death. And I think he wanted me to talk him out of it. And I just said, I'm not going to speak for God, but I tell you what, if God wants you to be a preacher, you better not, not be a preacher. And I said, if God doesn't want you to be a preacher, you better not be a preacher. <laughs> so... Uh, but, and we talked about how it's a scary thing, James says, be not many teachers because we're held to a higher account. So I don't want you just to parrot what I say or gobble it up because I said it. I want you to run it through Scripture. But ultimately, all of these things have to run through this grid. Uh, and theology, the process, is a process of creating this grid of interrelated beliefs or doctrines that essentially act as a worldview. So you'll, you'll hear me, and in my writings I talk about this, that theology and worldview, in my mind, are synonymous terms. People talk about their worldview. You know, I'm conservative, or I'm capitalist, or I'm Republican, or I have a Judeo-Christian worldview. That's fine. I, I, and I, at least you understand you have that worldview. But the only worldview that matters is a biblical worldview. Not a Western worldview, not a conservative. It's a biblical worldview. Everything else will flow from that. If you're biblical, then of course you'll be conservative. You'll be, you know, all these other things. But you don't want to hang your hat on some movement or some other term. It all starts with the Bible being your, your worldview. So any questions about that? I know we're right up against the time, but I'd like to at least look at one of these here real quick. Um, 
but I want to see if you have any questions about this process. Did it make sense? Kind of understand where we're going? So theology, just remember, it's a process. Starts with the Word of God. You study it. You compare Scripture with Scripture. You come up with some conclusions. You put those conclusions to use as you're going through life. And, uh, and, and the more you know the Word of God, the more the bells will go off. When you hear something, you'll think, oh, wait, I read something about that in the Bible. That doesn't sound true. And you can reject it. So that's what we mean by theological proof. What we're talking about is looking at connecting dots in Scripture to make the case. And so uh, let's just do that real quick. First of all, step one is it's based on the word of Christ, and we've already talked about this, but he said, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. So Christ said that. But secondly, he added that his promise is staked on the word of the Father, and he says no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. What do we know about the Father? Here's the third link in the chain. Again, comparing Scripture with Scripture. Premise A, premise B, premise C, ergo, you can't lose your salvation. So if it's based on what Christ said, and he stakes it on the word of the Father, and Titus tells us God cannot lie, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. So that's a theological argument. It's basically saying, the Bible says this, but it doubles down by reminding us as we compare Scripture with Scripture that God cannot lie. Theological proof. Does that make sense? All right. Well, we'll stop there uh, unless you have any questions or comments. We're not in any rush, but it's a good stopping point. And then we'll pick up next time with exegetical proof. Who knows what exegetical means? Isn't that a word by word? Or is that a teaching by teaching? Well, um, so expositional generally means explaining the text word by word and in its context. Exegetical uh, implies that you're dealing with the original languages. So it, it sort of implies that you've, you've dug a little deeper beneath the translation, looked at the Greek and the Hebrew. That's exegesis, right? Um, exposition is dealing with just the English text and looking at it in its literal, grammatical, historical context, what does it say? So we're going we're gonna to look at a couple of things next time that, that you might not see in a cursory reading of an English translation, but when you know a little bit of the substance behind it in the original language, it really seals the deal. So, All right, awesome. Well, we'll uh, see, you, uh, see you next time.